right, there we go. Good morning. My name is Kim Carson. I'm the Vice Chair of the Summit County Council, and I'm really privileged, feel pri privileged to welcome you here this morning. First thing I'd like to do is thank the Park City Hospital for hosting us. We appreciate their partnership and support of this program. Um, I don't know if all of you a couple of weeks ago saw an article on the front page of the trip, and it was a story from Dennis Ciccini and the story of his struggles with his son Tennyson. Did any of anybody read that? Well, I had the opportunity to work with Dennis several years ago when I served on school board. He worked for one of the architectural firms that we did business with. And of course, when you're working with somebody in that type of an atmosphere, you have no idea what they may be going through in their personal lives. And unfortunately, after 10 years of a struggle with um, starting with an opio opioid addiction after a severe injury, um, it progressed to heroin. And he found his son dead in his bathroom after he thought he had had a successful stint in rehab. And Part of his story really resonated with me. I kept thinking of the routines who have helped get us organized and the struggles they had trying to identify where to go, where do you get information on diagnosis, on treatment. And this can be for mental health issues or substance abuse, alcohol addiction. And I think every one of us in this room are here because we've been touched by it in some way, whether it's a family member. Um, for me personally, I lost a brother to substance abuse. Um, it could be a friend, a friend's child. You could deal with it professionally on a daily basis. And I appreciate all of those in the audience that do that. Um, unfortunately, there's just too many that have this connection. But when I look around the room, I really see a lot of hope. We've come together as a community, and that's what it's going to take for us to move forward. But I'm confident that we can move forward if we work together. Summit County is really proud to be a part of this and to support this. Um, we appreciate the work of Rich Bola and of Ollie um, and our partnerships that we have in the community. I'm not going to start to name them because I know I'll miss somebody. So, Ollie's going to be able to talk to us a little bit about how we got to this point, how we've reached this point of hope. And I'm pleased to introduce Ollie Wilder. And he's the program's director for the Community Foundation. Thank you so much, Kim. We so appreciate the, uh, the county being uh, so closely involved in this effort. So here we are to talk about Summit County Mental Wellness Solutions. I really appreciate your being here to think about it, to discuss it, and to look for those solutions that we all know we need in this community. Um, how, so how did we get here? It was a shock to the community when Grant Sieber and Ryan Ainsworth, two junior high boys, died of synthetic opioid abuse last fall. And I think everybody just woke up like we hadn't before to the fact that we do have substance use problems in this community. What can we do about it? After a few meetings uh, within the school district, and I really commend them for having started thinking about this, they turned to us at Park City Community Foundation and said, you know, this has to be a broader discussion than just the school district. This is a community-wide problem. Can you help us 
connects to the larger community on this. At the same time, the Summit County Health Department had been working with Valley Behavioral Health and with the support of Connect Summit County to do a mental health needs assessment survey for all of Summit County. And they were reporting out last fall as the results of that. And they found things like uh, people don't even know where to turn. When they do try to get help, it takes way too long to get it. If they have to go out of the county to get help, they're much less satisfied with the help that they get. So that and many other indications that we have work to do in this community. We went to Rich Bullough, the director of the Summit County Health Department, and we said, hey, you're getting a mandate from the county council, Park City Council, various other groups in the community to do something about this mental health problem. Can we make sure substance abuse is a key part of that? And he did a big swallow, and he said, okay, but only if it's truly a community-wide effort. That's exactly the message we've gotten from the school district, and I think that's exactly what we all feel. So with, uh, with the Summit County Health Department as a hub of activities, we've created the Summit County Mental Wellness Alliance. Almost the same name as today's, uh, as today's event, and there's the little new logo um, for the Summit County Mental Wellness Alliance. And our goal is really to implement a countywide, systemic, sustainable approach that addresses mental health and substance use, addresses youth and adults, addresses prevention and treatment. This is hugely ambitious, but I think, you know, let's go for it. I mean, the community is ready to do it. So we're here today to take some next steps um, along those lines. Um, that's all I wanted to say for now. I'll be back to do some uh, panel discussions and things, but I'm really delighted to introduce Rich Bullough, the director of the Summit County Health Department, to tell us a little more about how the Alliance is working. Thanks. Uh, so looking around the room, I see a lot of new faces, and that really was the objective of this meeting. Uh, get more people engaged in this, and, and as Ollie just said, um, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, looking around the room, though, there's there's familiar faces. Um, there is a state representative here, Tim Quinn. Where where are you? We had to leave. Yeah. Oh, we had to leave. Well, I, I mentioned him. Yeah. <laughs> Dan. <laughs> um, but but the players in the room are in the room that will make this thing happen. Ollie just mentioned that there's a lot of work to be done. I, I want to make sure that people understand that there's work being done. Um, we we have uh, hired a new mental health and substance abuse coordinator, Aaron Newman. And, uh, Aaron's job really is to pull together in a strategic way the partnerships and, and the programs that we need to move forward to reach the objectives that we're, we're going after. And as Ollie just said, those objectives are big. It, it's lofty, there's a lot of work to be, to be done, but the community is on board, and I think that's a big deal. We pulled together partners, you know, we did the assessment that Ollie mentioned, we pulled together partners to focus on some specific objectives and targets within that. Now we're in the process of saying, okay, who are the partners that need to play? What are the timelines? What are the measurable objectives, goals, and what activities and programs can get us there? So that's kind of where we are right now. That's a big deal. The partners, I just want to um, name a few, and I know I'm going to forget some. Summit County, Park City, Park City Community Foundation, Connect, 
who um, I, I always have to pause when I say connect. It's a group of heroes that have really stepped this conversation up to a place that it needs to be in our community. So thank, thank you especially to them. Valley Behavioral, <laughs> Valley Behavioral Health. Um, all the school districts are on board. Park City Hospital, University of Utah, and many, many others. So thanks to all of those. Um, I, I do want to especially take a minute and make note of the, the really incredible contribution from Alana Amsterdam and uh, and Rob Katz, I almost forgot his name, sorry, um, from Vail. And they just uh, donated $250,000, if you haven't heard, that will specifically go to the Community Care Program, which is a prevention program focused on youth, which is exactly what we need. We had a, a rollout meeting just the other day around that program, it was dynamite. Um, really a lot of energy uh, and focus. I think that, that was very important. That's really all I want to say. Um, with that, we've got a great keynote. I'll introduce Edward Tan from Connect to make that introduction. Connect is absolutely delighted to be able to sponsor Leon Evans as our featured speaker today. Uh, we'd also like to thank the Park City Hotel for providing uh, the accommodation. We decided that we wanted Leon Evans uh, as our speaker based on the Boston Globe Spotlight team's recent articles uh, on mental health. The title of the particular article was San Antonio became a national leader in mental health care by working together as a community. An important lesson for us to remember. San Antonio may be a national leader today, but 16 years ago their system was broke. Leon Evans was the person that they hired to fix the system. And he was well, well, well equipped to do that job. He'd been the head of the Texas Department of Mental Health and Mental Retardation, and before that, he headed the mental health system, uh, mental health care system in Dallas. But his leadership positions were also preceded by many years in the trenches as a mental health worker. So he really understands what it takes to make a difference. Rather than reciting his many accomplishments in San Antonio for you, I'm just going to turn the floor over to Leon and uh, let him tell you the reference. Good morning, everyone. So uh, I, I was interviewed yesterday by your local national public radio station. And uh, when people come to visit uh, our programs, and we have literally probably four, five, six uh, different groups a month from some place in the United States, and we've had seven countries come and visit. Uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services, two drug czars, and I can kind of go on and on and on. They're, they're impressed with our unique and different services, and I'll, I'll talk about that. Uh, so it's not the standard kind of inpatient, outpatient stuff that works for most of us, but people that have these chronic diseases that actually doesn't work very well at all. And, uh, but the thing uh, they always ask after the tour is because we have so many community partners who are so uh, dedicated to this continuous quality improvement process, How'd you get everybody to work together? <clears throat> I already sense, based uh, you know, upon Ed and other, other people I've, I've talked to here, your community and community leaders have come together to start addressing that, this problem. And uh, that's, you know, that's really our success is, you know, 
how we uh, brought people together. So uh, I'll start off telling this uh, little story. When I was a state director of our community services at the Texas Department of Health and Retardation, you know, I, can't, I work closely with the criminal justice system. I became painfully aware of all these people in jails and prisons who really shouldn't be there. Uh, that, you know, they're, I mean, they shouldn't be there at all for, for any reason. And they're taking up space for violent offenders, and they're very costly, and, and they're being criminalized for, for having this, uh, this illness. And so I wanted to try to do something about it. So I actually funded some pilots, one in East Texas and South Texas, to try to see if I could get the community to kind of, uh, uh, together and start working on this, and also for episodes psychosis and early intervention prevention. So I spent a lot of money. I like looking to hire consultants and develop all these wonderful plans. But when it got down to actually operationalizing the plan, everybody in the community said, that's a great plan, but not with my money or my staff. Right? And so they just told you when I, when I went to Bear County Center for Healthcare Services, uh, they were $6 million in, in the red. Uh, they had an employee union because our staff just hated working there because they weren't respected, they weren't well paid, and the services were terrible. Uh, we were in the newspaper all the time for bad things happening. And so I knew, uh, being the new person in town, if I had tried to address this issue and bring people together to work on it, uh, nobody would have shown up. For one thing, you know, uh, our, our program you know, had a terrible reputation in the community and nobody wanted to be affiliated with it. Secondly, uh, everybody's uh, underfunded and overworked, right? And that's still true today. So, you know, that's just, you know, people just want to put one more thing in their plate when they have all these extreme and harsh uh, things that they have to overcome now with, with the funding and, and the staff they currently have. And if somebody, <clears throat> if I had invited people to come, and if anybody had shown up, it would be somebody down the, the chain who couldn't make any decisions around policy and funding. It would be somebody to say no and not yes. So I went to the newly elected county judge, a guy named Nelson Wolf, who had been mayor before that, and the state senator before that, I explained the problem. He's very bright. He got it. Uh, he's still the county judge, by the way. <coughs> and uh, so uh, I said, Judge, we need a champion. We need somebody to make our community come together and start working on this issue. And he not only penned the letter to invite you know, hospital administrators and the uh, uh, elected officials and judges and the sheriff and the uh, police chiefs to this meeting, but he got the mayor to go sign the letter and he charged the group. We put this wonderful judge who did the mental health commandments, Judge Lice Jackson Spencer, in charge of the, the first little diversion group that we had. And we would meet in her court, and uh, we kept really good minutes. So if you were representing the hospital administrator or the sheriff or somebody, you didn't show up, everybody in the community knew it. Right? So we, we kind of blackmailed you, so everybody showed up. And what that did, you know, remember we didn't have any money. We just had a vision about trying to make a difference with the community coming together. So uh, what, that, what that did is it gave us a chance uh, to get to know each other. So back then, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of acknowledgement by law enforcement about the mentally ill. I mean, you know, so I've, I've been on the National Association of Counties Justice Committee now for 15 years, and I'm the only mental health professional. The rest of them are, are county sheriffs. And, and uh, uh, county judges and county commissioners from around the United States. The first meeting I went to, all we talked about was hard stuff. 
You know, we talked about interoperability, we talked about body armor, we, we talked about all kinds of stuff. You go to a NATO Justice Committee meeting now, over half of everything we talk about is mental illness and drugs and alcohol. You know, every sheriff uh, in, in every county in, in the United States understands they're the biggest mental health facility in the community, and they have a lot of people that shouldn't be there. And uh, so they're, they're really our biggest advocates. In fact, in Texas, Texas usually defunds a mental health substance use. They never give us any additional dollars unless there's some kind of federal lawsuit. But, uh, 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 you know, Texas legislature only meets every two years, uh, thank God. <laughs> but, but, like, uh, two sessions ago, the Texas Sheriff's Association's number one ask of the legislature was to fund mental health services. I mean, they, 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 they believe in this so much. And when, they're, when they're, their ask came out, it was the next week that the shooting in Newtown happened. You know, where, where, where all those children were murdered. And so we, we, we got additional dollars. And I want to talk about the data that, that's being collected now and why where the public mental health system in Texas is getting so much money. It's really not from the mental health system in Texas, it's from the criminal justice system. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. So uh, anyway, if you just think about it, law enforcement officers back then and mental health professionals and, and hospital administrators, we didn't have a lot in common. You know, we don't have the same mission, we didn't talk the same language, uh, you know, our funding sources are different. So having that little group together, you know, kind of doing research on diversion, gives us an opportunity to get to know each other and understand each other's missions and appreciate each other. So, uh, you know, now when you come to Bear County and, and uh, if you go through one of our tours, we have lots of law enforcement officers and judges, they, they, they have all bought into this. You know, they've seen the, 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 the huge uh, differences. So uh, let me give you some statistics, and we'll get into uh, a couple of videos because the picture's worth a thousand words, right? And then, then I'll go through my slide presentation. So uh, is the homeless, is that a big problem here? Do you have a lot of homeless folks? Yes. Yes, no? No, it's not big. The chronic homeless are people with mental illness and substance use disorders usually co-occurring. If you, if you Google the cost of homelessness uh, to the taxpayers, you'll get all kinds of study. I did it like five years ago. I wanted the city to tell me to pay for the sobering unit, and I'll tell you more about that later. And uh, so, uh, the, the most, the, the least uh, expensive study I saw was done by the Home Secretary, it's $30,000 a year. Uh, these homeless folks have lost of contact with law enforcement officers. They're in and out of jail. Uh, they're, they're in and out of emergency rooms. They get bedded in hospitals because they have all these chronic diseases. They're in and out of court. Uh, the Scripps Center, which is the famous research center in San Diego, the San Diego County actually hired them to look at their super utilizers. 257 people cost the county $16 million. Okay? And so uh, these these folks who are uh, are uh, are homeless and ill and and, and addicted, I'll talk a little bit more about that because there's a notion by the general public that that uh, this is the good life. You know, I don't have to work. You know, I can do drugs and drink. Society's gonna take care of me. I I, I guarantee because we uh, we work with the homeless. Uh, we we uh, did a lot of the the services of the homeless campus, these people are miserable. 
their poor souls. They die at least 25 years sooner than the general population. Again, I'll talk more about that in a little bit about what's really driving the cost of healthcare in the United States. Yeah, they, they don't use alcohol drugs to get high anymore. They use alcohol drugs to keep from getting sick. And uh, so I'll talk about that. So the homeless, that's, that's you know, uh, uh, you know, if you look at disease burden, you know, uh, who's, which diseases uh, are calling, causing early death, lost productivity, and actually driving up the healthcare costs. Uh, the uh, Gates Foundation has a unit at the University of Washington uh, and actually the World Health Organization uses their data now, so worldwide, which diseases actually, you know, uh, you know are, the, are the most devastating. Well, uh, whether it's the National Institute of Health or the, or the Gates Foundation or the World Health Organization, three or four of those are always behavioral health nation. And uh, so the homeless are, are a problem. Uh, we'll back on. Okay. Trying to move over this way. Sure. Sorry, everybody. We seem to be right under the speakers or something. Apologies. Sorry. Right in the middle of the room, and it may or may not help. Is that better? No. Let's see if we can adjust the sound. Sorry about that. It's okay. I think you're good. Give it a try. Okay. Thank you. So, uh, I've got a bad back. So, anyway, the homeless, huge problem for society. They die early, they cost taxpayers a ton of money, and it doesn't help the public safety net a lot. You know, they become estranged from their families. Uh, you know, there's so much pain associated with these people going untreated and self-medicating without alcohol and drugs. Uh, what's really driving up the cost of, of health care? And we're just talking about disease burden. So uh, uh, your state did not take the affordable health care dollars. Uh, Texas didn't either. But we're suffering because CMS promulgated rules around you know, uh, people with chronic diseases. So they, uh, they used to give states money for what they call uncompensated care or disproportionate share. So your hospitals here got reimbursed for all these people who are unfunded and have insurance to help help them with their health care costs. That's being squeezed down every year. Utah's getting less and less money. In Texas, we've actually had quite a few rural hospitals go belly up. And even even the other hospitals are, are very concerned about this disproportionate share funding going away. And, and when it goes away, guess who's going to pay for that? Yeah. Uh, everything rolls downhill, right? So it's going to end. It's going to be on the county, in the, in the cities, in the states to do that. Not only that, uh, if you have high readmission rates, in other words, you go to the hospital, you get treated, you get out, and you're right back in within a certain period of time. If you have a certain percent of that number uh, uh, that are readmitted, you lost five percent of your Medicare funding this year, three percent the year before, and three percent the year before that. So who are these folks who are getting uh, readmitted over and over again? And who are these folks that, that cost so much for uncompensated care? Uh, it's the people that we're talking about today. In fact, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a, you know, uh, some of you probably read some of his books, Tipping Points and other things. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't know if you know this, but his mother was a psychiatric nurse in Canada. And so he has a very, uh, uh, yeah, he has a real interest in, in health care. Can we switch here? Sure. So sorry. Apologies, <laughs> everybody.
So Malcolm Gladwell's kind of an introvert, and but he has a real interest in this. So he actually followed one guy who was an Afghanistan vet, came back stateside, uh, had post traumatic stress, so he started self-medicating with alcohol and drugs. I had this explosive personality disorder, so he got the fights. He got a dishonorable discharge because he didn't have his post traumatic stress treated. So Malcolm Blackwell uh, followed him. He became homeless. He started self-medicating with alcohol and drugs. Developed all these chronic diseases. Died very early. And Malcolm Blackwell went through and found out what it cost taxpayers uncompensated care. It was over a million dollars. And one of his premises is this very small group, this Prado effect of people that are actually driving up the cost of health care that are these million-dollar patients. So people with severe mental illness die at least 25 years sooner than the general population in Texas is 29.4 years to a uh, year sooner. That study was done by uh, SAMHSA, the Federal Substance Use and Mental Health Administration, where Dr. Ron Mandershot is still there. And he worked with NASHA, the, the state mental health directors, and actually got the mortality rates from every state. And you know, they found out, I mean, they were shocked to find out these people died this, this, this 25 years sooner. In Texas, they died 29.4 years sooner. But they're not dying of their mental illness. You know, they're dying of congestive heart failure and liver disease and lung disease. So these people get uh, undiagnosed, they don't get the treatment. So they're self-medicating with alcohol and drugs. So we just heard today, you have people in your own community who are overdosing and dying early. So uh, we know what alcohol and drugs do to your body, right? Over half the cigarettes are smoked in the United States are smoked by people that have alcohol and, and uh, and drug problems and have severe mental illnesses. Well, we know what uh, cigarette smoke does to your heart and your lungs. So these people are dying real early. Uh, they, their uh, disabilities uh, going untreated means they probably don't have a job. If they don't have a job, they're not going to have insurance. So they're never going to get to primary care or early intervention disease management. So they die, they're million-dollar patients. That's what's, but, you know, people didn't understand that. Because when a hospital administrator looks at, at the diagnosis, they died of congestive heart failure, they died of lung cancer or something like that, when really the real root cause of their, their illness happens to be their untreated mental illness and addiction problems. So, you know, the early intervention and prevention, I know you're doing some things with your high schools uh, in, in junior highs here, and we'll talk a little bit about children and health later. So that's another problem, right? If you're kind of looking at silos, homeless, big problem. Mentally ill and addicted, mainly. You know, the, 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 uh, the uh, what's packing our emergency rooms inappropriately and driving up the cost of health care is these people that never get uh, treated early and they're dying and, and uh, there's loss of productivity and all the pain associated you know, with their families. So, uh, is child abuse a problem in Utah? Yes. Yeah? Well, 65% or more of uh, parents are abusing their children were abused and neglected children themselves, right? And so almost all the, the child protective services programs across the United States are around safety and protection, right? So we, we identify these kids that are being abused and neglected, and we want to get them out of that harmful situation. So we put them in shelters or or, uh, or uh, whatever, you know, last few years we're trying to get back to family members, kinship care, that kind of, but a lot of times we, we traumatize the kids again because, you know, a lot of times there's several kids in the family and it's the older children 
that are bathing, feeding, clothing the younger kids. But when we take away from the families, uh, the, uh, the older kids can't be in the same shelter with the younger kids, right? So they're kind of traumatized all over again. Uh, how old do kids age out of foster care in Utah? 18 of them. 18 years old. So, uh, you know, these, these kids get no trauma-informed care as a rule. They've been brutalized, so they're, they're broken psychologically. In fact, a huge percent of the homeless were abused and neglected children. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, you know, we should do a study. We, we run the, the, self, the safe sleeping area in San Antonio for the homeless. And I, I can tell you that almost every woman that's homeless has uh, been brutalized and raped and you name it. It's, it's happened. And so we're really getting into trauma informed care, but a huge percent uh, uh, were abused and neglected children themselves. So uh, my wife and I have two sons. Uh, One's a doctor, the other one's an international uh, business guy that's really successful. They're great husbands and great dads. But if my wife and I aged them out of our family when they were 18, uh, they probably wouldn't have done too well. So we take these broken kids, you know, uh, who get no treatment, and we throw them to the streets. Well, you know, they're, they're hurting. So, you know, they go to the streets, they start using alcohol and drugs. So, you know, Young ladies get caught up by some predator, so they start prostituting, and you, you know. So it's a huge problem. It's very costly, and it's just the wrong thing to do. Uh, I'm not sure about your jail, but I can tell you that, uh, that uh, almost every jail in the United States is a major deliverer of mental health services in the United States. And I know because I talked to a lot of sheriffs all of the United States because of my uh, positioning on the NATO's Justice Committee. And the average non-violent mentally ill offender who goes to jail stays three or four longer, three or four times longer than a violent offender. For two reasons. One is they don't have money to get bailed out. And secondly, if they're psychotic or have you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, exacerbating mental health problems, many times the judge is not going to have back in the courtroom until they're lucid or they're going to put them on a forensic commitment and send them to the state hospital where they're going to stay three or four times longer than their civil commitments, which also is a, is a big problem. <clears throat> uh, so they stay a lot longer, three or four times longer. Then, many times, if not most times, they're going to get identified as having behavioral problems. So they're going to be on suicide watch or they're going to go to the medical unit. All that costs three or four times more than the general population. So can you see how how, uh, you know, we taxpayers are really uh, not being very smart. Uh, you know, uh, lives are being lost, uh, uh, people that have potential are, are being lost, families are being destroyed, and we're paying a ton for, for all that. And so, uh, let me tell this one story that we'll show the videos. So, uh, I tell everybody, I can prove that treatment works. And, uh, you know, you, you've probably been in those discussions before, and, and almost everybody says, no, you can't. You can't prove it. That's who do social work. That's like bathroom stuff. That's, you can't prove that stuff works. And, and how I prove it is through the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. And so uh, back in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a federal lawsuit against the Texas prison system called the Ruiz case. The Texas prisons were like most prisons in the South. They were almost a profit center for the state. We made all of the prisoners work. 
They grew all their own food, made their own, own clothing. Uh, they made furniture, repaired school buses, sent out license tags. And uh, so, uh, you know, uh, it wasn't very costly to imprison people in, in Texas and most southern states. They also didn't have a lot of professional staff. They used what they called a building tender. So some sub-warden would put, pick the biggest, meanest guy on every cell block and put them in charge. And if they kept the peace and did what the sub-warden wanted, they got good time or some kind of special consideration. Well, the problem with that is how they kept the peace was through violence and intimidation. So there were a lot of wrongful deaths. Uh, no medical services to speak of, okay? Uh, very minimal medical services. And so if you're dying of cancer in the prison system, there's no way they have painkillers or opiates. You just died this poor death. So there's this class action lawsuit. The name of the judge was William Wayne Justice. Uh, the state finally agreed to build a whole bunch of new 1,200-bed prisons, staff them with professional staff, and have medical services. In Texas being a law and order state and very conservative, we actually built two additional prisons because we want to have space. Well, that bill came home, and you were talking about billions of dollars to build those facilities and then national staff them. And you couldn't force prisoners to work any longer. You know, you could pay them a little bit, and if they want to work, they could. But you had to, you know, have medical services and professional staff. What happened is those two extra prisons started filling real, uh, real fast and the legislature started getting very nervous because this federal judge is still looking over their shoulder and they didn't want to build any more of these prisons because it's so costly. They did, definitely didn't want to raise taxes. So they turned to the researcher uh, at the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, a guy named Dr. Tony Favello, and he's still around. Uh, he works up with Dr. Fred Usher at the Council of Governments and you know, uh, some of these uh, early convictions and diversion. Uh, programs which we're going to pilot right now. And anyway, they said, Dr. Bell, tell us why our capacity is being used up so fast. So Tommy and his staff went and looked at the prison population in depth, and he published this report for which the governor fired him for because he basically said, We're pretty stupid in Texas. We got a whole bunch of people in prison that shouldn't be here. And oh, by the way, they don't make very good prisoners because they're hearing voices. And they have these other kinds of, of uh, uh, weird behaviors. Uh, they never get any good time because they don't obey the rules. They're agitating the other prisoners so they make it dangerous for everybody. Uh, because they don't get any good time, uh, they spend their whole length of their sentence there. And many times they're in isolation and they go to lockup because of, of their behavior. So you've got this mentally ill person who's psychotic in, in isolation, which only makes them worse. So when Dr. Fabello did, was very clever because he used graphic in, in charts and almost made it like a coloring book where I could even understand it. And, and all our elected officials can understand it. So, so he showed violent offender who obeys the rules. They get good time, so they spend less than half their time in prison. And this is kind of what it costs the state to keep them in prison. Nonviolent, mentally ill offender gets no good time they end up going to lock up that costs a lot more than the general population or the medical unit that costs a lot more patient. And their cost is this. And oh, by the way, they're taking up space for violent offenders, and you may have to build more prisons. And your criminalists are having somebody to go So, our, our, like I said, our governor fired Tony. But one of the things that Tony recommended is that the Texas Department of Criminal Justice create a whole new division, which they did. It's called the Texas Commission on Offenders of Medical and Mental Impairments. And what they used to do is go through the, 
the prison system, find these nonviolent, no ill offenders, and they put them on parole. A conditioner of the parole is they have to see my psychiatrist, take their medication, do their alcohol drug screen, because a lot of them are self medicated. In German state, compliance with treatment. Well, felons on parole, uh, the ratification rates uh, four to six years out are 40 to 60 percent. In other words, they get rearrested and they go back to jail or prison. If you have a mental illness, a little bit higher. Guess what it is with Bear County when you get treated? 6.6 percent. You know, that proves treatment works, right? Most of those are technical ratifications where you round the person up, get back in treatment, get back in front of their probation officer. So, uh, treatment works. Uh, my contention is we got the treatment in the first place, they would have never gone to prison anyway because they don't have a propensity you know, to, to be criminals. It's their strange behavior that gets them in front of law enforcement officers and, and the fact they're self-medicating without alcohol drugs. Now, I've got this saying, today's felon, if you're mentally ill, you know, I mean, today's misdemeanor is tomorrow's felon because they just get in front of the judge so many times and sooner or later they're going to prison system. That doesn't happen any longer. In fact, uh, if you if you do get convicted of a felony, yes, severe mental illness, they don't put you in the prison system anymore. They put you on parole and send them directly to me. So <clears throat> Texas has a conservative think tank that's two blocks from the Capitol. It's very well funded. It's funded by the, the Koch brothers and a lot of other people who are interested in conservative politics and in financing. And they have this whole section called right on crime. Right meaning conservative crime. Not the right thing to do, but right or crime is conservative. <laughs> so they actually have all this data that they've collected about you know the criminal justice system paying for for alcohol and, and drug abuse and mental health treatment, and how it's reduced the, the prison population to the point where we shut down uh, two prisons, and, and they're, they're talking about a third. And uh, so uh, I uh, and they're taking this information all over the United States. So our U.S. Senator lives in San Antonio is Senator John Cornyn. Yeah, he's the whip in the U.S. Senate. Uh, there was a bill that passed Congress recently where they had several mental health and addiction bills. They rolled into one big bill that passed. And uh, Senator Cornyn knows a lot about our programs. And uh, his staff visited many times. But until recently, he never would really come out publicly and talk about you know treatment and diversion and and the criminalization of the mentally ill. And uh, I've never talked to him about this, but I'm pretty sure the reason is because he didn't want to see cross off on crime. Right? So, you know, you know, conservative folks, if you do the, the time, you should do, or the crime, you should do the time. But since this right on crime stuff has all this data about how it improves the public safety net and saves taxpayers' dollars, and they've been to the Cub Brothers and other folks. This is a conservative movement now, so not just liberals who believe in, in treatment, but also very conservative folks. That's one reason that, that bill passed Congress so easily with almost 100% of the, of the House and Senate voting for it. And so uh, uh, in uh, 2000, in uh, 2002, our county jail was being cited by the Texas Jail Standards Commission for overcrowding and deplorable conditions. And uh, they uh, brought in uh, an expert. Um, and besides that, there was a federal judge who started looking into the, uh, into the jail for the overcrowding and potential rights violations. So our county decided by jail space from other counties to get the population down so they meet the standards. They brought in an expert that says you need to build another thousand beds on the detention center 
right or what. <clears throat> the year before that, when we started training law enforcement officers in the 40 hour crisis intervention training, I understand you guys, you know, here almost, uh, you know, uh, 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 a huge percent of your sheriff and your police department have that training. And uh, so I commend you, but that's not the case in most communities in, in the United States. So uh, a lot of the police academies and sheriff's academies over the years have kind of been hardened. You know, they're more like going to boot camp. You spend a lot of time learning how to fire your weapon, uh, how to do, uh, you know, takedowns, how to use your command force, your command presence. The problem with that is after you get out of boot camp, 80% of your encounters with the public, you shouldn't be using those hard skills. You know, they're, they're traffic stops. Or there's some kind of emotionally uh, 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 intense uh, situation. So. You know, if you have somebody that's paranoid and mentally ill and you get in their face and start barking orders, uh, you know, uh, use your command voice, command presence, people get shot, officers get shot, you know, the public get shot. You see it on TV all the time. Uh, family disturbance, you know, lots of family disturbance calls, highly emotional. If an officer gets in there and starts using their command voice, command presence, you see it on TV all the time. You know, all those people get hurt, and law enforcement officers get hurt. Bad. A racially tense situation. We saw what happened in Ferguson. You know, when uh, you know, uh, the law enforcement officers, you know, even had body armor on and, and uh, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, uh, and things escalate, things get tense. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's bad for law enforcement. So both our sheriff and our police chief in Bear County require all their officers to go through the 40 hour training. And they don't do it, I think, just because they want them to have these de escalation techniques or the LEO. I think they do it because they want them to have more tools in their toolkit for when they interact with the general public period. So they have some soft skills, they have the hard skills when they need it, you know, they're well prepared. Uh, it kind of gets back to good community policing. <clears throat> so, uh, we just talked about, uh, well, let, let me go back a little bit. So a lot of these people with mental illness, especially if you're young, and a lot of old people too, they don't realize they have a mental illness. You know, uh, the psychiatrist can you know, tell you there's a whole disorder. You know, people don't think they're, they're sick. And, and if you're a young person, what do you know about mental illness? You know about the law firm, the kid that shot the congressman, right? You know about the kid that shot all the, all the children in Newtown. Uh, you know about the shooting at Virginia Tech. You know about the drive-by shootings in California. You know about the shootings in the Naval Yard. You know about the shootings in, in the theater in Aurora, uh, Arapahoe County, uh, Colorado. So when a young person, you know, has that first diagnosis, they totally reject the diagnosis because there's such a stigma associated with mental illness. They say that's not me. You know, I'm not that. You know, that not that person. And, and when in reality, the majority of people with mental illness are more likely to be victims of violent crime than perpetrators, more so than the general public. So the, the fear is really unfounded, but it, the, these happenings are so horrific, they make the news. So, you know, they make people want to run from treatment when treatment really works the best. And uh, so the good psychiatrist and I were just uh, talking earlier about really probably the way to uh, get people into treatment is through their primary care physician or their special physician and have psychiatric services as specialty care and have these teams integrated. So uh, years ago, we kind of divided the brain and the body, and I saw in one of your handouts, you know, there's no health without mental health, that's the 
the same in Atlanta, uh, British uh, Journal of Medicine a few years ago. And it's true, if you just think about it, what are, you all are rational people, right? What are you scared of? What are you scared of? Aren't you scared of having strokes? You know, where you can't communicate and you're, you're so disabled, you know, you, you lost you know, your, your abilities, or having Alzheimer's, or dementia. You know, that's terrifying, right? Well, that's kind of what happens to these, these younger people and other people. We have these mental illnesses that are, you know, they, they, they can't communicate right. They have these strange behaviors. So they're, you know, uh, and they're young, they look normal. And they got all these weird behaviors, and they scare the hell out of us. But they really do well when you get them treated. <clears throat> so this is on the civil side. So we just talked about finding ways to get people into treatment on the criminal justice side. And oh, by the way, I don't know if you have uh, what I call therapeutic justice or the problem solving course. But in Bear County, we have veterans courts. And uh, 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 the veteran court, the judge actually wears a camouflage, uh, camouflage robe. And so you have all these returning vets that have post-traumatic stress and are using alcohol and drugs and these other mental disorders. And so rather than going to jail or prison, you know, they put them in the veterans court. And the judge is standing up there and basically saying, hey, you know, you're a veteran. I know you've got problems. We want to support you. No vet left behind. In fact, uh, in his court, when, uh, uh, when he walks in, everybody stands up and salutes. And uh, so uh, when, when they leave, all, all the uh, 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 military folks are in the veterans court. Uh, I'll say uh, no, no warrior left behind. So they're all there for everybody. Phenomenal outcomes. Absolutely incredible outcomes. We also have drug and alcohol courts. We have children's courts. Children's courts are usually about their parents getting treatment for their uh, alcohol drug problems or the mental illness so they get the kids back. These programs work and they usually uh, get people into treatment that are kind of treatment resistant who wouldn't go to treatment otherwise. And so uh, we've got data, there's national data. Uh, these programs uh, work phenomenally well. And so that's the criminal justice side. And so a condition of not going to jail or prison is going to treatment and, and shown in my dark courtroom and we're going to you know, help you, uh, uh, you know, uh, get well and give you some hope and healing. <clears throat> this is on the civil side. So, uh, did, have any of you heard of Kendra's Law? Uh, it was passed maybe 20 some years ago in, in New York. So, there was a guy that used to panhandle outside Grand Central Station, and he was a mountain of a man, and he never would take his medication. And so, uh, he was uh, violent. In fact, the people that lived around Grand Central Station would walk. You know those New York blocks, you know how long they are, they're like a mile. People walk around Grand Central Station so they didn't have to walk past this guy because he would insist you give him money, he would have groceries out of your hand. And so he's all the time getting picked up on civil command because he's potentially dangerous himself or others. Put in Rocker Island's mental hospital. He gets stabilized, he'd get out, he refused to take his medications and do his doctor's appointment or follow through with any of the treatment plan. So one winter, he was in the subway station, he saw this lady named Kendra, and he thought she was a demon. He pushed her under the subway and she died. So an investigative reporter went back and looked at his record and saw how many, all, you know, how many times he had been in the civil side and refused to take his medication and all his arrests. And she published this report, and the citizens of New York State were outraged that the public system would allow somebody that sick and potentially dangerous out over and over again, knowing exactly what's going to happen. And so uh, you can't violate somebody's rights, right? 
kept him in jail, had committed a crime, and you know, essentially yeah, his uh, offenses were because he was blatantly psychotic and uh, uh, mentally ill and, and, and potentially angered himself or others. But what they did do is they passed this law that says if you have a history of being hospitalized over and over again and not you know, complying with your treatment when you get out, and, and uh, which causes a condition of you uh, hurting yourself or somebody else, then there can be a commitment on the civil side. And so basically, Texas passed a law similar to the Kendrick's program. No other county in the state does it except for us. Uh, seven or eight years ago, I went to our civil judge, Paul Jackson Spencer, and said, Judge, why don't you use the intensive outpatient commitment for some of these people who are real ill that they tend not to do well when they're discharged from the San Antonio State Hospital? And she said, well, I'm not a judge, I'm not a mental health professional, and how would I know they were complying with whatever I ordered them to do? So uh, I offered to pay for a social worker to work in her court. So the social worker who worked with our staff to do a treatment plan, then her name was Mary Helen Lopez, and Mary Helen Lopez could get back to the judge and talk about whether the person was, was uh, compliant or not. So Texas, uh, you know, they weren't sure about this law, so even to be eligible, you have had to stay at least 60 consecutive days in the state hospital to be eligible for this intensive outpatient amendment. So the judge agreed, after I agreed to have her social worker, to start uh, these courts. And so I sat in her courtroom uh, uh, on a few of the first ones she did, and she was, you know, she had her black robes on, and that black robe effect really works. She'd so say, hey, Leon, uh, you know, you've been in my court many times over the years. You've spent most of your adult life in the state hospital. Your illness has been so painful for yourself, your family and friends, you're estranged. And she said, I'm going to you know, ask Mary Helen Lopez over here to work with the Center for Healthcare Services. We're going to develop a special plan for you, and I expect you to comply because I want to help you get your life back. And you can see there, we had a, what does it say? 79% reduction of people getting rehospitalized with those high utilizers. So this black robe effect works, uh, you, know, if you, you know, and that's what I'm saying earlier. You know, you know, uh, they're not lucid enough, they're not rational enough to, to figure out that they, they need help and they need treatment. So, you know, is there ways that you can help people who can't make good decisions for themselves get lucid enough so they can make good decisions for themselves? So this is the intensive outpatient uh, treatment program. Uh, earlier we were talking about uh, emergency rooms being packed with unfunded people. And emergency rooms are small, right? <coughs> Had a lot of people in the emergency room that shouldn't be there. Then many times emergency rooms get on bike drive-by status. So if you're in a car wreck or have a, uh, a child with a broken arm or, or uh, have a heart attack, you may have to drive. The emergency room drive you to the next hospital if, if uh, they're on drive-by status. So mentally ill people pack your emergency rooms. And uh, so remember we had this community collaboration where we uh, nobody's forced to come, but we had 40 to 60 people a month show up. We have 35 pages worth of data, and basically we invite the community to come in and criticize us, the public mental health system. And so the hospitals are always there, really mad, because of all these mentally ill people getting better in their hospital and emergency rooms. So uh, all of the hospitals in San Antonio have an electronic medical record, and we have a central database called PASA, we all pay dues to. So we queried that database and said, 
give us the names of people showing up in emergency rooms inappropriately three or more times in a quarter. And we ran that. We had uh, 220 some names pop out. Uh, we wrote a grant which was funded. We worked with the medical school to do the research on the baseline. And uh, we did an intensive uh, uh, outreach kind of program, intensive case management. And most of these people didn't want our help. You know, a lot of them, by the way, had been in child protective services or they self felt safe or in emergency rooms and hospitals. And so uh, our staff had to kind of, you know, learn how to take rejection. So it's like Groundhog Day. You know, we would ask, you know, tell these people we care about them, we want to help them, and they tell us to go to hell and get out of their face. We showed up the next day saying, hey, we care about you. We want Sooner or later, we're going to get you. And we've uh, had over a 50% reduction in those inappropriate people who are unfunded going to emergency rooms for free space up for people that are really sick. And it's saving for over 4.7 million. <clears throat> that, that study was like an earthquake in Bear County. So there's a, a big nonprofit organization, Methodist Healthcare Ministries, that funded another study uh, where they, and they hired a healthcare analytics company to really look into that database for their, their, their super utilizers. So they're a little under 3,000 people that cost the hospitals $1.1 billion of unfunded patients. So now the hospitals in the city and county are talking about having their own coffers coming up between 30 and 40 million dollars to fund these super utilizers and first time episode psychosis. You know, so data really drives behavior. And when people see that, you know, uh, the treatment works and it really benefits them, like the prison system, you know, right on crime, uh, you know, uh, then they get behind uh, these issues. And, you know, where and there's lots of research going on right now about how treatment works and what disease burden means and, and uh, you know, what, it, what it costs uh, taxpayers <coughs> in the trauma and, uh, you know, for uh, family members. should probably have two questions in about five minutes. Okay. So, this always happens. I get through halfway and then it's time for questions. <laughs> so, uh, we, we have silo care. Right? So we've got mental health over here. We got addiction over there. We got primary care over here. And really, for this population, we need integrated care. <coughs> so uh, uh, I was asked to go to New Hampshire before the primaries uh, and talk to uh, uh, them about their opioid problems and all the kids that, that died there. New Hampshire's got only a million six people, and I think there are. Uh, uh, over 200 kids that had overdosed with heroin already. And so uh, I testified for their Senate. I met with the Medicaid directors. I had lunch with the governor, Maggie Hawson, who's now the U.S. Senator. And uh, one, of, one of the things I, I found out is, you know, there they really weren't working together. And, uh, you know, uh, the uh, uh, problems uh, associated uh, with them not working together is this siloed effect where, you know, nothing really works well. So right before I went to New Hampshire, I had a call from the medical director from Aetna. And of course, Aetna's probably one of the biggest health insurance companies in the world. And uh, their medical director was asking questions about our super utilizer program. And, you know, uh, I, when I met with Medicaid directors, remember I told you when I was in, when I was in New Hampshire, and I told him the same thing I'll tell you. So, 
uh, he was asking these questions, and I kind of figured out what he was he was interested in. Edna, which doesn't do managed manage care, no Medicaid, you know, just regular health insurance. So you work for a company that has health insurance? A very small portion of those people that have health insurance cost Edna, it's like 6%, cost them 26% of their health care costs. So the United States Medicaid directors went off a few years ago and looked at their claims and information, came back to this 1550 rule. 15% of the Medicaid recipients cost 50% of the cost. Kaiser Permanente, just a, a, a few months ago, published a study where they worked with the Medicaid directors and came back with this 5% 50 rule. So there's a small group of people that are actually costing the most. And the reason they are is just the same thing I tell the Medicaid directors and the medical director Edna is you all aren't very smart. You have, you, you have your insurance, and your insurance is the same right, right? It pays for inpatient and outpatient services, right? But this real small group of people that are so disabled, they need intensive case management, the program I just told you about. They need crisis respite, they need short-term residential. And if you will spend that on these you know, very dysfunctional and ill people, they're not gonna spend all their time in the highest cost center, which is your inpatient. And so I really think across the United States now, there's a movement towards that. And to really make that work, you've got to integrate primary care, because remember they die early, they have all these congestive you know, heart failure and, and other kinds of problems. Uh, in, our, in our crisis unit, we have a sobering unit, a detox unit, and a mental health unit. So when people come in sobering, we get into detox. Once we get into detox, we find that they have an underlying emotional disturbance or mental illness that they've been self-medicating. They come in our mental health unit, once we get them stabilized psychiatrically, we find out they've been self-medicating with alcohol and drugs. So, uh, you know, this very small group of people, you know, are so dysfunctional. But if you can get them to treatment, this integrated care, they do very well. So, our homeless town downtown, San Antonio's down 88%. The number of people going to emergency rooms in apartment is down 50%. Uh, and this potential huge uh, project that I just told you about. Uh, the number of, of uh, kids in child protective services, as we wrote uh, one of the first uh, curriculums in the United States for resource officers for school police, and we have a children's crisis unit like we do for adults. So these officers aren't getting in these uh, uh, disturbed kids' faces and use their command voice, command presence, where almost always uh, the kid would reach out and push the officer or, or there'd be some kind of altercation so the kid would go to juvenile detention either get kicked out of school or put in special ed. Well, once that happens, you're, you're in that track. And so, so now these officers recognize the signs and symptoms of emotional disturbance and mental illness. They talk these kids down, they talk to their parents, they call us, and we get them some help. It's absolutely amazing, so question time. Sounds good, question time. Um, yes, we, we have a mic, I think, that's coming uh, around. How is your program funded? Uh, that's, uh, uh, so remember, uh, we're uh, overnight 17 year success. <laughs> right. And so, you know, remember we didn't have any money, we are poorly funded. So the first thing we saw that little group that got together in the judge's program, uh, it didn't cost a lot to start training officers. So we got the, the Houston Police Department that had been trained, come to their first training. And there wasn't an officer in the room who wanted to be there. The sheriff and the police chief made him come, I heard things like, you know, I'm, I'm a cop, I'm not a social worker, I don't believe in these type of other programs. And uh, by the end of the 40-hour training, all of them to a person, man and woman, said, 
oh my God, I can't believe I didn't have this training before. So once you start getting, and we also train 911 and dispatch. So if you get that call, somebody screaming, the Lord's Prayer of McDonald's, you make sure you spend a, right. especially <laughs> So the next thing, if you have officers trained and you don't have an alternative to jail or emergency room to put a person back on the street, that's where they're going to go. So our little group decided we need to lose the little crisis center. So uh, I actually worked with the delegation of the legislature and went to the Texas legislature and made the mental health department give me some flexibility around my funding where I could you know, fund our little first little crisis unit. And remember, we're keeping a lot of data on cost and outcomes, so we see a huge reduction in the number of people going to emergency rooms and in jails. And, and we were in the second round of the Samson's Jail Diversion Grant. We, there were three rounds. Everybody in the United States got those grants, did the same thing except for us. They put somebody in jail to identify people with mental illness and try to do discharge planning so when they got out, they could get them hooked up in treatment. Not very successful. What our group did, because we had family members and, and uh, community leaders, uh, we developed uh, some value statements before we wrote the grant. And one of our values is that you shouldn't be criminalized for having the illness. So that's how we came up with the diversion. We've got to find a way to keep these people that come in front of these officers for these minor offenses from going to jail or emergency rooms or homeless. So we developed that first little process. And so remember, data is really important. And so we had this huge decrease. The game center did the research uh, for SAMHSA. And uh, you know they, they 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 were impressed. And that's when they started working on the suspension of intercept model because we had two or three. So you're basically just, are you basically funded from SAMHSA? We've done a lot of SAMHSA grants, so we make them look really good. Okay, and your day to day yeah. operation, how is that? We have a hundred different funding sources. Okay, are they all private? No, no, uh, they're not. Uh, actually, the county, the city, and hospital district give us a whole bunch of money. Okay. Now, I'll give you an example real quick, if I can. So, uh, uh, San Antonio is a conviction in tourist attraction. It's a warm weather. The, the people there come from humble beginnings, most of them very religious. When we see people on the street corners shaking, asking for money for food, you know, people live there when they roll down the window and give them all their change or a dollar or five. My understanding all that money is going for alcohol drugs, none of it's going for food or shelter. And so, the city of San Antonio had a huge number of bike cops that did nothing but wrangle these, these homeless people downtown to keep them away from the tourists and make the downtown merchants happy. And so these people get arrested all the time for aggressively uh, panhandling, passed out in the middle of the street, defecating your name in public, stealing beer out of the 7 Eleven or whatever. This is the United States, when you get arrested, you've got to go through to see a judge, right? So the judge would give you a fine uh, for whatever one has to be you got picked up for, which you never paid. You know, they put you in the drop tank and we start monitoring. Right before you go into convulsions and DTs, we let you go because we've already paid some of the million dollar month for this. You walk right out the door, start self-medicating, uh, panhandling self. You might get arrested two or three times a day. So you can imagine the, the cost or the bike costs and administration costs. So when we open the sobering unit up, we're telling these down to have bike costs. Don't charge them for these minor offenses. Don't take them to the court. Bring them to our sobering unit. Okay. Well, let's save the city a ton of money. They were spending $16 million a year on administration costs alone. What percent of this were these, these minor uh, offenses? I'm not sure, but a bunch. Uh, the cost of the bike cost downtown, you know, wrangling all these people, uh, you know, uh, it was a big problem. So uh, they, they helped fund the Sergeant Detox Unit because the return on investment for them is huge. 
and uh, also uh, they're, they're concerned about the, you know, uh, how uh, the, the guests, you know, the tourists, uh, the convention people, you know, feel about San Antonio and how San Antonio's managed. So I can kind of go through the hospital system. So we get a lot of local money uh, because we keep all this data, and the return on investment for them is, is gigantic. Can we, can we get copies of that? Sure. We can get your financial model. You can. You can also get copies of that 35 pages of the data we keep. describes our behavior. We have a continuous quality improvement uh, process. I think I saw a question here. Microphone coming. I'd like to know what your integrative care, how long you usually have your people in? So, uh, we, what, what we found, it may not be true here, because I know we've got Mountain Health and some other programs that really do a, a good job. But what we found in San Antonio, even with the federal qualified health programs, these people that are very ill, uh, we try to get them to go there or, or, or some other uh, charity clinic or something like that. Uh, they just they go one time, they won't go back. And the reason is, is they're not treated well. They don't feel welcome. Uh, in fact, I had a doctor tell me, I don't want your patients in my clinics. And I said, why? And he said, because your patients stink. They have hygiene problems. Your patients have weird behaviors. They're staring on moms and their babies. You know, your, your patients, uh, you know, don't have resources, you know. And so it just dawned on me. We care about these people. We treat them with dignity and respect. Uh, and so uh, we want to believe in integrated care, so we're going to do primary care, too. So CMS, after the Affordable Health Care Act was passed, they pretty well knew that wasn't going to drive down the cost of health care right away. So they, uh, CMS put these healthcare innovation grants out about five years ago. And there were, uh, I think, 6,000 applicants, mainly big hospital systems and medical schools. We were the first to get funded in the United States because we brought primary care and early intervention to this, you know, this high-risk population. And mathematics and the research the outcomes are pretty phenomenal. And even on our, our safe sleeping area, we have a doctor who did street medicine in Venice Beach, and these people are really sick and, and mentally and, and physically. I mean, uh, she goes out and finds them on the courtyard, you know, endears herself, and we've got physician extenders and PAs and APNs. And one of the big secrets is hiring people in recovery. So we have a, we have a lot of people who are in recovery that have shared life experience, and so uh, people are more willing to get treatment when I mean, somebody was just like them before we went through treatment, it's done real well. Plus, they're more likely to stay in compliance with the treatment. So, uh, we had this one guy that uh, Jenny Go from NPR uh, did a story about us, and she was interviewing him. And uh, so, we had this path team, uh, a group of professionals that used to go under bridges and encampments, try to identify people with severe mental illness and get them into treatment. And our staff, we're all professional staff, they care about these treatment these people. They actually kind of maybe put themselves in danger because they were going to, you know, places where there weren't, uh, you know, a lot of security and things like that, or ranges and cameras. And we make appointments, the no-show rate is real high. But just soon as we put peers with them, people that have been homeless and been in those situations, the no-show rate went way down. So this guy named Sam Lott that Jenny Go uh, interviewed, and her dad's a psychiatrist, San Francisco, so she had good training too. And uh, anyway, I went to Sam and I said, Sam, I said, you're amazing. 
you know, how you know how you get people to come to treatment and comply with treatment. And he said, well, Leon, I've been on that same shipwreck. So uh, he was homeless and was a heroin addict and had bipolar disorder uh, for a long time. And he's been cleaning sober and working for us now for six years. So we have, we have a lot of peers, and they're just part of the team, you know, part of the medical team, part of the social uh, fabric of the team. And uh, they do some miraculous things about getting people engaged and keeping them engaged. More questions? Right here. Microphone coming. Hi, I'm Victoria. I'm on the VA board uh, in Las Vegas for veterans, and I want to say thank you to our veterans for all their service and all their effort in helping us become free. Um, deal with veterans and their complaints of not getting enough mental health help. Um, I want to know when and where are mental health services going to be more available for our veterans? Well, that's a great question. Uh, actually, there's a veteran committed suicide every 46 minutes now, and it's going up, not down, even though the VA has hired over a thousand people to try to engage these folks. And I think there really needs to be a closer relationship with the community where these people are living or are homeless in the VA system because, you know, like I said, a lot of these people are, are ill, they're treatment resistant, and even though the benefits there, they don't have access to, uh, they don't have, you know, uh, people that, uh, you know, uh, you know assist. So in our homeless program, we have lots of vets that, that come in. And uh, the local VA there uh, actually has a person that we contact, so you know, we get them to and we we hire uh, peers that are veterans uh, to be able to uh, you know uh, uh, get these people you know their their benefits and get them into treatment. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I know the feds are throwing a lot of money at this problem. I'm not sure they're thinking about it very smartly about how they're doing it. Another question? Microphone nearby. I can just talk about it. Can you tell me what? Your crisis unit looks. I saw a slide pass quickly. Yeah, so, so over lunch, there's a virtual tour of the crisis unit. Why don't we show that video while people are eating lunch? Can we do that? Are they going to um, eat in here? There isn't exactly a lunch, but oh, there is a little food in the back. And yeah. if people want to stay a few minutes um, after, uh, we'll be having some breakout groups that go till about 12.30. But we do have a video that I could show folks. Um, yes, yeah, it's a really good video. And we have one call, roll call, that's done by law enforcement officers. That, uh, maybe you can just send that out and share it with people. Then and the, the one uh, where I was talking about diverting people from emergency rooms, there's also a video about that. And it also talks about the integrated care plan. So if that's it for the questions, um, we're going to take about a 10-minute break. We'll be back in here starting with a panel at 10.30. Uh, so take a few minutes. Hope you'll all be back in here. Can we run those videos during the break? We could run the videos um, as we're breaking, so maybe we'll go ahead and play them. And so if you're going to be talking, talk a little more outside. But please come back in here at 1030. And please join me in a huge thank you for Leon Evans.